This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 22, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. China has bigger economic problems than most people know. The problems of state-led capitalism have revealed themselves in recent years, but many of the hopes of returning long-departed manufacturing jobs to the United States are also rooted in a poor understanding of how economic development works. So says Cato Institute Senior Fellow Jerry O'Driscoll. China's stock market crash, the recent stock market crash, indicates cumulative problems in the Chinese economic model. After the global financial crisis, China engaged in even more aggressive expansionary monetary policy and government spending than did the West in order to prevent the global recession from impacting the Chinese economy. The result of years of this has been they built up a lot of excesses, and the excesses have appeared in asset markets, in, in real estate markets, and in the stock market. The government has encouraged its citizens to buy stocks and encouraged state-owned enterprises to buy stocks in order to prop up the stock market. Uh, there already has been a crash in real estate, and then the stock market was a secondary crash. And uh, as I said, this indicates very significant stresses in the Chinese economic model. Okay. With respect to the United States, how does that impact what the United States has done with its decision recently to not begin the long-anticipated right. process of raising uh, interest rates. Yes, the Chinese situation impacts on the United States, first of all, directly because of financial linkages. Remember, China's our biggest creditor, and there's a lot of investment by Western, including United States companies in China. And then it has also an impact that if Chinese economic growth slows, then countries that export to China are affected. U.S. doesn't export a lot to China, but other countries uh, in the West do. So there are direct and indirect effects of this uh, economic turmoil, I'll call it, in China. And that led the Federal Reserve at its last monetary meeting, the meeting of the Federal Market Committee, to hold off the long-anticipated rate hike because of what was described as international financial conditions, which were mainly what was happening in China. China's economic model's been described a couple of different ways. I, I refer to it as state-led capitalism, but uh, what would be a, a shift that China could make to essentially get the government out of the way and, and, and continue this, this long process of liberalization that they've been engaged in? Your description of the Chinese model is good, state-led capitalism. There's a large sector of state-owned enterprises uh, that are really a kind of old Soviet model or the old Chinese version of the Soviet model uh, of uh, state owning the major means of production. And then there's a sector that I'll call a market sector, although it certainly isn't. A t it, there's still even government interference in that. And that has been the dynamic part of the Chinese economy. And in order for further progress to be made, as you put it, they need to continue liberalization. Actually, in the last few years, if anything, they've reversed liberalization. And if they want to continue to grow like they have in the past, then the freer sector of the economy, the private sector of the economy, has to increase relative to state-owned enterprises. But there's profound political implications of that because officials at high levels and mid-levels and low levels 
earn their incomes because of their involvement in the state enterprises. There are other problems that they face and that are more medium and long-term problems. Um, if, you th if, you think, if people think there's a distribution problem in the West, there's a much greater problem of the distribution of benefits from the growth that has occurred in China. And uh, they're, they're concentrated at the top. And there are a lot of people that have not benefited very much from the liberalization that has occurred. And there's a huge fairness issue, and that's a term used a lot, that the princelings, the son of the elites uh, and, and daughters of the elites, princes, princelings, um, have disproportionate advantages and have gained disproportionate wealth. Uh, and the ordinary person has, as I said, not fully participated in, in the growth. So that's more of a medium-term problem. And then they have a long-term demographic problem. Uh, when you have a one-child policy, you are not um, reproducing your population. China's going to hit a peak population and then experience the problems that Japan and many countries in Western Europe are experiencing now, where you can't sustain economic growth if your population is declining. Additionally, China wants to become uh, global military power. It's very hard to become a global military power with a declining population. Donald Trump and I think to a lesser extent Bernie Sanders have have made uh, foreigners, for lack of a better term, Trump and more particularly has made China an, an issue and he makes it sound very scary but he's not really, he, he's certainly not expressing your side of it. No. Well, let's look at the basic economic deal we have with China. Uh, China has been, for a long time, a low-cost producer of manufactured output. And let's look at one example. Apple and other high-tech firms uh, invent really nifty technological electronic products. And most of the value added is by the inventing. And then the actual making of the products, they want to make them as inexpensively as possible. So they send them to a country like China, and China makes whiz-bang electronics for us, like iPads and iPhones, and for a very small portion of the total price. Despite a very long and complicated supply chain. Despite a very long and complicated supply chain. And they send the products back here, and they can be sold at a much lower price than if we tried to make them ourselves. So the American consumer benefits from this, from having inexpensively produced products, some of which, like the electronics, are very high quality. You tend, you know, a lot of people think, oh, China just produces low quality cheap goods, but that's not true. They just produce goods cheaply, but they may be high quality goods. Now, Trump thinks they've stolen manufacturing jobs, but those jobs are never going to come back to the United States. In some cases, they never were in the United States. In other cases, if for some reason China faltered or natural market forces drives wages in China up, which it's been doing for some number of years, that means China now has the potential of other competitors and, in fact, the actuality. Some goods that China used to be producing are now being produced in countries like Vietnam and Indonesia and even Bangladesh. And uh, one competitor of China is Mexico. There are goods for which China and Mexico can be competitive. 
So if costs in China go up, yes, sure, manufacturing jobs will leave China, but not for the United States, but for one of these other low-cost producers. In fact, if it were just the cost, uh, Western firms would have already moved more jobs out of China than they have, but they also want to be in the Chinese market, so there's an advantage to producing there. It's a big market now. So they're not coming back to the United States under any conceivable set of circumstances. But you know, there are some jobs that are reverting to the U.S., but it's more over this long supply chain issue that, that we talked about. And some firms, some American firms, have found that the supply chain is just too long. And they want at least some of their output being made here because it's, they can adapt more flexibly, more quickly to changes in demand. But OK, so some manufacturing jobs might come back to the United States. But the sad story is that manufacturing plants don't employ a lot of people anymore. They're highly automated. Indeed, they're actually highly automated in China. So if, if manufacturing output might increase in the United States, but there won't be much jobs created in the manufacturing sector. The, the, and, yeah, the relationship between manufacturing output and employment and manufacturing in the United States has been uh, separated for some time. Oh, uh, for decades, decades. So this is just uh, a, a fantasy to believe that there's any president that could institute any set of policies that's going to make the man United States a manufacturing powerhouse again. If I recall correctly, manufacturing output in the United States peaked as a percent of the total economy in the 1920s. Jerry O'Driscoll is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.